there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. And today my guest is Dave Carger. He is a TCM host. I'm sure you've seen him on there. And he's also written his first book, 50 Oscar Nights, Iconic Stars and Filmmakers on Their Career-Defining Wins. He talks to 50 people. Some of them are household names. Some of them you don't know. They're more behind the scenes. But he gets the scoop on what the Oscars experience was like for them. And it's fascinating. It's got heart. It's got humor. It's got dish. And each chapter was like a delicious little morsel. And so I was so excited to talk to Dave. And also, we were doing magazines in the 90s at the same time. He was at Entertainment Weekly. I was at Movie Line and other places. And he's just a name that I've always seen his byline. I've always admired his work. He was always super cool when I would run into him in person. So it was fun to compare notes about those times. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Twinkies. No, it's not. I'm not even Twinks or Twonks or Twinkies. I don't have any sponsors. It's just me, but I love to do it, so I do it. Uh, but there are two ways you can support the podcast if you enjoy it. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. I always appreciate that. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the Derek and Romaine banner. Lots of LGBTQ shows. Really fun content. And for a monthly fee, you get my show early and you get all these other great shows as well. All right, that's enough of the plugs. Here now is the interview with Dave Carter. Joining me now from Palm Springs, California, it's Dave Carger, entertainment journalist. He's also a TCM host, and he has a new book out called 50 Oscar Nights, Iconic Stars and Filmmakers on Their Career-Defining Wins. This book is like candy. It's like a Whitman sampler. Ooh, I'm going to have a little taste of Nicole Kidman. Ooh, let's do that sound guy I never heard of whose story makes me cry. Like, it's it goes down so easy. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you, Dennis. And obviously, I know that you know what it feels like to write and publish a book. This is my first book, so it's a very exciting experience for me. Is it fun signing them? That part is stressful to me. Right? Because you, you try to make it a little special and you're like, I, I got nothing. I, did, I do a no. lot of dream big. was a lot of mine. That's not, a good Not one. great advice, actually, in looking back. Oh. No, I'm joking. Um, but me, yeah, I what do you write? And I want to engage with the person and talk to them, but I'm also thinking of what I'm going to write. And I also want to keep the line moving. Yeah. If it's a, it's a, that's been the one kind of like a little bit stressful part for me. Yeah, but it's really cool to think somebody wants my autograph on something. That's a cool feeling. Um, and you true. know what else is really going to be fun? Uh, 15 years from now when you see one in a used bookstore <clears throat> and you buy it for a dollar – uh, or maybe 50 cents, and you've signed it to somebody you thought would keep it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually funny. It's actually funny when that happens. Um, uh, you, you've been a TV, TCM host for some time. I watched Butterflies Are Free the other night because I had Luke Yankee, Eileen Heckerts on the podcast recently, and he talked about that movie and her, and I was like, I'm going to take this in. And um, you did the intro. Yes. One, one take. That's a lot of words in one take. Yeah, and if I screw up, which happens, then I have to do the whole thing over again. Yeah. There's not like, oh, let's shoot him from the side and cut back and forth. It's one take. One take, and it's like two or three minutes. So if we screw up, we got to start over from the beginning. It's stressful, but it's fine. It's a a dream job. You've you've been doing it for a while. I just wanted to say, I was like, oh, he's crushing it. It's still happening. It's still going on. Wow. So hats off. Um, I I love this book so much. Um, You start off with Nicole Kidman. I love her so much. Me too. I feel like she's such an artist. 
I feel like she's so cool. I feel like I could get some clothes to go donate to Goodwill. And while the while those clothes are in my trunk, she's made two movies, two miniseries. <laughs> like, she's she's crushing it. So um, I just think that she's a great person to open the book with. Um, yeah. And we should tell people just in 20 seconds that this book is about the Oscars and it's new interviews with 50 people, actors, directors, singers, people who have won Oscars talking about the day that they won and what they remember about it and what their perspective on it is and who they went with, what they said, what they wore, all of that. But yes, Nicole Kidman. She's your first. Because she was amazing. She was such a great interview. I had to start the book with her. Well, she also talked about, she didn't go into a lot of detail, but saying, you know, that she was having this professional renaissance, but her personal life was a mess. And you, when you see these people on TV, you don't know what they're dealing with off camera. And did that come through in your interviews as a recurring theme? Big time. And it was a a valuable lesson for me as I'm going about my job now, interviewing a lot of people who are up for Oscars and doing the whole process and award season. It's important to remember, we look at the Oscars and we're thinking, oh, this person's about to win an Oscar or they've won an Oscar. Everything in their life must be great. Well, this book and doing this book showed me and is showing people who are reading it, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, Nicole Kidman talks about how she was recently divorced. She hadn't met Keith Urban yet and she wins an Oscar, but she ends up like going to bed before midnight, you know, eating a cheeseburger on the floor of her hotel room and feeling like I need to find a love in my life, someone to share a special experience like this with. And I loved the fact that she was so willing to talk about that with me. Right. And she opened up about that aspect of it. It could have been more surface. And she she revealed that, which I loved. Um, who surprised you? Hmm. Jane Fonda was a bit of a surprise. I was really excited to talk to her. And um, I was really appreciative about all of the stuff, her telling me everything she had been through and feeling hostility from the crew of her own movie, Clute, and she would show up on the set and there'd be an upside-down American flight that somebody had hung on the set mess yeah. with her. And just all the different things that she was going through. She was sick on the night she won her Oscar. And then when she won, she gave this very short speech, but then felt like so relieved, but also guilty that she had an Oscar and her dad, Henry Fonda, didn't have one yet. And so she broke down. So that was a very surprising interview for me. She's a hero of mine. And it feels like with that book, when she wrote her book, she just decided, I'm going to cut the shit and just tell the truth about everything. And she's kept doing it. She talked about, she was afraid they were going to boo her at the Oscars. Yes. In their interview. Even though she had a good feeling she was going to win, she was considered the front runner the whole season long. She was, she was feeling these conflicting forces coming at her because she was getting the industry's highest award, but she was also feeling like there were a lot of people in Hollywood who hated her, who hated right. what she for, who hated what she was fighting for politically. So she was worried that she was going to get up there and be booed. And you, when you watch, you go on YouTube and watch her speech, which I encourage everybody to do with all these speeches, go on YouTube and watch these speeches. They're a great companion to this book. And you can almost see the terror in her eyes. Like what is about to happen as I'm giving this very short speech? Are they going to let me finish? How's it going to go? And of course it went great. One of the themes that emerges in the book is how an Oscar affects somebody's career, whether it's positive or negative. Did it come too early? What does it mean at this point? Like Martin Scorsese says, if he hadn't won, or if he had won the Oscar earlier, he might not have made the movies that he made. I found that fascinating. 
Isn't that interesting? And also Julia Roberts, who was nominated very early in her career twice for Steel Magnolias and Pretty Woman. She says she was so happy she didn't win either of those times. But she compared it to like the, the cool kid in high school who peaks in high school. Yeah. And then downhill from there. So she's really happy that she won hers when she did. I mean, with Martin Scorsese, it was almost comical by the, by the time he finally won for The Departed that he had not won before. I mean, it's ridiculous, but I'm glad. I mean, I guess he feels like he won when he was meant to. There's a little anecdote in the Cameron Crowe chapter about Almost Famous about Kate Hudson and Kurt Russell um, that it has to do with this scene. Can you talk about that? Yes, that's a great moment where a lot of people thought that Kate Hudson might win the Oscar for Almost Famous. Um, it was a tight race that year because it was her and Frances McDormand and Julie Walters and Judy Dench. And then Marsha Gay Harden comes in and wins the award. And what happened was Kate Hudson, who some people thought was going to win when she lost, Kurt Russell, her dad, stepdad, whatever you want to call him, um, kind of leaned over to her and said, congratulations, Kate. Now you have a career. The implication being, to your point, Dennis, like if she had won too early, it might have been peaking too soon and it would not have been the best time. But thank God she didn't win because this then allowed her to continue to soar. The other thing that comes across in your book is there are stories where it really is the dream come true moment, where everything lines up. And I was very moved by the idea that these are people who accomplish something. It's a, a yes. real marker of like, I did something. And, and that really moved me. Yeah. And this, and the people that are kind of coming to mind with what you're saying are actually Octavia Spencer and Allison Janney. And they have these interesting intertwined moments because the two of them are great friends. And also two of their other really good friends were involved very integrally as far as helping them get the Oscar. So the, um, the director of the help, Tate Taylor was a great friend of Octavia Spencer's. And then the writer of I, Tanya, um, you know, Stephen Rogers really helped her and wrote the movie for her. So in both of those cases, they say like, if the, the four of us would go to Hollywood parties together and whoever would have thought that we would end up at the Oscars because of a movie that Tate directed and then a movie that Stephen wrote. So it's just beautiful, powerful moments like that and show the value of a great friendship in this industry. And there are lots of stories of strugglers, people who, you know, toiled away for a long time, almost gave up. Jeffrey Fletcher, the screenwriter of Precious comes to mind. Can you talk a little bit about his story? His story really moved me. And I wanted him in the book because I wanted some people that were not household names. And I had him in there because he was the first black screenwriter ever to win an Oscar. And he told me this great story about how when he was a kid, he found out, actually he didn't find out until later, but he, he found out that his mom and dad, when they wanted to go to the movies in the American South, they had to sit in the segregated balcony section of the movie theater. But they never told him that when he, as a kid, expressed interest in the movie industry. And it wasn't until later that they told him that story. And he's very grateful that they didn't discourage him by sharing that story. But it was so powerful that he then got to bring his mom to the Oscars. So she went from sitting in the segregated balcony of the movie theater to um then sitting with her son while she's winning, while he's winning an Oscar. I mean, it was just a beautiful, powerful moment. Amazing. Um, you know who else I fell in love with? Lee Grant, who won for Shampoo. Oh. She is still alive. She's still on the earth, right? She is. She's 98 years old. She wow. like that interview in person at her apartment. And she also had gone through so much adversity. She was blacklisted for 12 years because of suspected communism 
communist leanings. And she only could work like in uh, state on stage for that 12 years. And then when finally the blacklist kind of fizzled, she came back to TV and became this big TV star because of Peyton Place. And then everybody wanted her for her movies and she wins an Oscar for shampoo and she's 49 years old at the time. And she really considered that her victory over the blacklist and like what a powerful uh, achievement that was. And she was like, I beat them. I beat them. She's super salty in your interview and you must've just been thinking, Oh, this is a gold mine. She was one of the first interviews that I did. I I was in New York. um, I live in New York part-time and Palm Springs part-time. And I, when I started this book a year and a half ago, I was in New York. So I did a couple of the New York-based people first. So Joel Gray was the very first person that I sat with. And Lee Grant, I think, was like the second or third. And it was so exciting for me to talk to a lot of these classic film stars. I have six people in this book who are 90 years of age or older. Um, Clint Eastwood and Rita Moreno, Mel Brooks, Estelle Parsons. So it was so special to me to include their stories. And yes, the, sometimes the older people are the ones who are kind of the least filtered. In yeah, a way. they have no Fs left to give. Um, Rita Marina tells a Joan Crawford story that was fascinating. Can you break it down? It's a little bit convoluted, but it's full of intrigue. All the gays love this story. Of course they do. Joan Crawford, that's her thing. She loves to steal everyone's thunder at the Oscars. Of course. Kept the Anne Bancroft's Oscar. Well, I guess Joan Crawford managed to somehow be in the wings right when Rita Moreno won her supporting actress Oscar for West Side Story. And she had, I don't know if she was about to present an award or something, but she was there with a photographer and Rita comes off stage and Joan Crawford just grabs her and pulls her into her bosom. And Rita Moreno said she smelled alcohol on her and she had like, she was built like a linebacker and Joan Crawford apparently just wouldn't let go. And the photographer kept saying, we can't see Miss Moreno's face, you know, Joan. And Joan Crawford said, oh, she's just upset. You know, they're there, sweetie. And, and Rita's like, I'm not upset. I'm not upset. I'm trying to cheat to the damn camera. Right. And then I get a couple of weeks later, Rita, who's back in the Philippines making a movie, gets a note that from Joan Crawford that says, you know, dear Rita, I'm so honored and moved that in that special moment in your life, you chose to spend some time with me. And I'll always remember that. And it was just, it's so Joan Crawford. Yeah. To, Take that moment like that and then write a note like that. It's just a great story. I couldn't believe it when she told me that. Yeah, so good. Um, I also learned reading your book that when John Travolta said Adele Nazim instead of Adina Menzel, it actually had an effect on the nominated people. Yes, that's right. God, no one asked me about that yet. But that was, I think, Kristen Anderson Lopez, one of the writers of the song Let It Go. And I guess one of her friends or co-nominees or someone from the movie had had snuck a flask of alcohol into the auditorium that night. And Kristen was like, no, I'm good. I'm not going to have any. I'm going to live this moment and try to be present. And then the Adele Fazim thing happened. And Kristen was like, give me that flask. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to drink. It's time to drink. If he's saying uh, Adele Nazim, I don't know where this night's going to go. Um, oh, my God. Something else I wrote down when I was reading your book, but I don't remember who it applies to, but I think it's a profound thought. Oprah roses don't die. So that's also Kristen Anderson Lopez. Oh, okay, okay. So after um, they won for Let It Go, I guess Oprah had run into them at a party and said, you're going to win or something. And they got back to Brooklyn. And a couple of days later, what showed up on their doorstep was however many dozens of roses and like some... Oprah, beautiful champagne or something. 
And Kristen said, like, they would always, for the next year, they'd be like, if something happened, they'd be like, is this Oprah champagne worthy? Like, can we open one of the Oprah bottles? But she also said the roses did last a very, very long time. So Oprah roses don't die. Oprah roses don't die. That might be the title of this episode. I love that. I want to talk to you about magazine days because I remember you worked at Entertainment Weekly when I was doing stuff for Movie Line and I would always see your byline. When, when Entertainment Weekly would come on Fridays, it was like the Christmas. Like I looked forward to reading it every week. I loved – I knew the people and the voices and stuff like that. And for me, being a magazine, doing what I was doing in the 90s, that was the heyday. I was – that was the best. I look back on that time and think, God, I was so lucky to be doing that then. Because it didn't, it was a window of time, right? Um, what was that time like for you? It was amazing. It's exactly what you just described. I was 22 years old when I got hired as an assistant at Entertainment Weekly in 1995. And I stayed there for 17 years and worked my way up. I had actually been an intern the previous year when I was just uh, 21 years old. And I worked my way up all the way to senior writer. And as you're alluding to, it was the days when magazines were making good money because of the advertising and expense accounts were amazing. So if I had to interview Johnny Depp and he was in Paris, well, then I went to Paris. If Angelina Jolie was in the south of France, well, I went to the south of France. If Colin Firth was in London, I went to London. And no one batted an eye. That's just we had the money. We were making a lot of money. It was this magical time. And I got to go to all over the globe. I met everybody. And it was, as you're saying, it was a time when people were really reading Entertainment Weekly and it really mattered who was on the cover and what we wrote about and what we said. And I was the Oscars writer and blogger for EW and EW.com. So my work there for 17 years really did lay the groundwork for this book because 35 out of the 50 people who are in this book are people that I already knew. I had already met them or interviewed right. them my travels over the past 25, 30 years. So I think that experience, along with the fact that this is a Turner Classic Movies book, it's TCM branded on the cover, that also helped me attract some of the, the tougher people. I think because even if they didn't know me, they knew TCM and they were happy to participate in a TCM book. Well, I think this could spawn many sequels. Um, are, are you concerned that any big A-listers that aren't in the book are going to see you at the next red carpet and go, what the fuck, Carger? I, I'm Sandra Bullock. I mean, come on. I have the Jesse uh, story. I could have given you dirt on that. Like, like how uh, do you, did you, did you feel like, ooh, 50, we have to cut it off at 50? Or yeah, are you thinking sequel could happen? I would gladly write a second volume if, um, if I, I might, my, I know my publisher wants a second book of some sort. So I'm in the process now of trying to figure out what, that's going to be, is it going to be volume two of this, which I would love to do, or is it going to be something different? But what I think I want to do maybe before I pull the trigger on a second volume is to reach out to some of the people who either I couldn't get for this first one, or I didn't reach out to the first time because I ran out of people and just get a sense of like, if I were to do a volume two, would you do it? And then go from there. But yeah. I maybe mean, yeah, a lot more people that are not in this book, great people with interesting stories that I could talk to. For sure. I want to talk to you when when you could feel like magazines were kind of going going down. You really handled that well from the outside. My hat is off because um, I tried different things, throwing shit at the wall. But I, hats off. But do you remember what that time was like? Have you from the outside? It feels like oh he he figured it out. Um, well. So yeah, so I was at EW until 2012. In 2010, after 15 years of working at Entertainment Weekly in the main New York office, I asked to move to 
LA and work out of the LA office. So I did that for my last two years working at EW. But by then, EW was very different. It was all, it was much more about the website yeah. and breaking news and scoops. And that was, that's not me. That's not ever been my interest. My interest is sitting with people and having longer form interviews, kind of like in this book. So around 2011, 2012, and plus by that time, I had been doing the Today Show for over 10 years. And I really enjoyed that part of my professional life. So at that point, I wanted to try to pivot away and not be a writer who occasionally goes on TV, but to be more of a host. Yeah. So what I had to do as kind of a halfway point was I worked for three and a half years at a website called Fandango, which of course, where you buy your movie tickets, right? So they hired me, they were, they're part of NBC and they hired me for three and a half years to come and be their correspondent in their face or whatever. So I was hosting video original video programming and creating different formats of video shows for them. And it was the perfect halfway point because I don't think I was in a position at that point to go right from EW to getting a great TV job. But this was a stepping stone for me to show the industry or whoever I can do this. And then when that kind of ran its course after three and a half years, that's when I started on TCM. So I, and the TCM job is the dream job that I want to do for the rest of my life. I was thinking about the TCM job I bet when people come up to you, there's this thing that you love together, movies, particularly old movies. I think that's special, right, when you encounter people? Yes, and the, the, the thing about TCM is that I really do feel like it's one of the rare TV channels where the people who watch it love the whole channel. Whereas, you know, I have shows that I like on sure. HBO or shows that I like on NBC, but I think with, with the exception of maybe Bravo – which I think is another channel where people love the whole channel. Right. Um, or maybe like MSNBC or something like that. But TCM really has a fan base that loves, it has it on all day long, loves everything about it. So yeah, so it doesn't happen all the time because not everybody watches TCM. But when I do meet someone who does know the channel and watches the channel, it is super fun because they're like, oh my God. And they, they need to tell us, me, what the channel means to them during COVID, for instance, or if a loved one was sick and they were with a, a dad or a grandparent and watching it. So we we get a lot of beautiful stories from viewers for whom the channel is a, is such a source of comfort. And I love that. And I that is in my mind every time I'm on the set filming something or, or doing anything related to TCM, that's very meaningful. I love that. And also you can, you don't have to be 25 to be on TCM, which is thank you. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, there's a few more bits from your book that I picked out. I did not know Marley Matlin was in Betty Ford in rehab when she got nominated. I learned that Me in either. your book. Neither. I had no idea. So she had won the Golden Globe, but she was going through alcohol and cocaine addiction. And she decided to check herself into Betty Ford the day after she won the Golden Globe. She had to miss some big premiere with Prince Charles and Princess Diana or something in England. And yes, the day the nominations came out, she was in Betty Ford, but she finished the program um, in enough time to actually go to the ceremony. And she was 21 years old when she won the Oscar, which is just mind blowing. And she remains the youngest best actress winner to this day. Amazing. Um, I'm jealous that I'm not a Julia Roberts gay like you and Jess Cagle. I, I'm going to admit it right here and right now. <laughs> I've never gotten to meet her or interview her. And I just feel like she gives you what you, she's that, right? She is that. She's great. So I met her 14 years ago. She had a movie out 
about to come out. It was Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. And I was given the the uh, assignment of interviewing her as for a cover story for Entertainment Weekly. We did it in Mexico for some reason. She was doing press there. And we just really hit it off. And she told me, so this was 14 years ago. I was 36 because I'm 50 now. And she, we did the interview and she was like, yeah, you know, Dave, I thought you were going to be like this 60 year old man. I think because I had been at the magazine for such a long time. <laughs> yeah. You started at 22. Been, yeah. And had been lucky enough to write like some, I guess, high profile articles or whatever. She thought that I was like this crotchety old, like veteran or something. Yeah. So I think when I walked into the room, and that happened to me a couple times. I remember interviewing Lara Flynn Boyle for Men in Black 2. And then we finished the interview and it was in a hotel. And I walked by the elevator and she was in the elevator. The doors were closing and she didn't know I was there. And she goes, that was Dave Carger? <laughs> and again, I think she was just expecting, I don't know. I don't think she was expecting like a, a kid. I, I, had, I had a realization about my early magazine days recently. And I wonder if you'll relate to it. I got along really well with actresses. We really clicked. I think they liked me. Um, I got good interviews out of them. I just think I had a thing. And I and I was I was like, well, I'm just charming. But when the Weinstein stuff broke and all the Me Too stuff broke, I had this thought of like, I must have been a breath of fresh air if this is what their day is like. Agents and audition and, and just lecherous people everywhere. I must have been like, oh, the sunny gay guy. <laughs> yeah, sign me up. Do you, did you, know you, do you, have you ever, has that thought of occurred to you? Totally has. Maybe not just like that. Yeah. But I do, but I do think, I do think kindness and manners and graciousness amongst people who did what we did at that time was not always the norm. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have both been to, press screenings or whatever, where people come in, I'm not going to say any names, but you're just like, you're, you're interacting with other human beings. How are you getting anything done? Why is anyone wanting to work with you or help you? Because you're just so unpleasant people just coming in and complaining about this or that. Um, so yeah, so I think kindness and generosity, you know, emotional generosity has definitely helped me. That's definitely how I've tried to comport myself throughout my entire career. And I know you as well. So I think that was a help. Yeah. Who intimidated you in general or for the book, for the book or in general? Well, one, I mean, this is, this wasn't for the book, uh, but what I once was at the Oscars and this was in the late nineties. And I was there with a colleague of mine, Trisha Johnson, this wonderful young woman. And she and I were covering the governor's ball together. And it was our job to get quotes from all the nominees that were there which basically means like going up and interrupting people and getting a quick two minute interview out of them. And Warren Beatty was there because he had written Bullworth and was nominated. Of course he didn't win. And I saw him and I couldn't even go up to him. I was so nervous. I was like, Trisha, you have to do it, which thank God she did. Cause she was gorgeous. And I'm sure he was much happier to talk to her than some 24 year old gay guy. <laughs> but that, so that was big Harrison Ford. Every time I see him, I get nervous. Sure. Um, I love him so much and he's always been very nice, but he's, I get very starstruck for the book. I would say two of the people that I was a little bit nervous about, but more excited than nervous Mel Brooks, because I had never interviewed Mel Brooks before. And he was amazing. He's 97 years old. Amazing. His, his recall of winning an Oscar in 1969 was out of this world. And then more recently, this is strange, but I was very nervous to interview John legend because I love him. 
And I love everything about him. I just think he's so fabulous and so elegant. And I love the voice and I love his music. And I was so excited when he agreed to be part of this book because I didn't know him. And I was very, very excited to to Zoom with him. And I, he was amazing. I could have listened to him forever. And Meryl Streep, of course, even though I even though I know her a little bit, to Zoom with her, that was, that was a big day. Well, also, she's got a lot of Oscar stories she could probably tell. Like, let's just talk about the first one. Is that what was – no, you did the one for Kramer versus – which one did you talk about? I read it. Choice. So we so – You did anyone, the Selfish Choice one. Yeah. Anyone, anyone in the book who has more than one Oscar, I let them choose which yeah. year they do. Um, I actually had already gotten Dustin Hoffman um, for Kramer versus Kramer, and I kind of had a rule, which was not to have two people from the same – movie so if she had wanted to do kramer versus kramer i probably would have tried to have convinced her to do one of her two best actress wins but i had a feeling she was going to want to talk about one of her two best actress wins and not her supporting win so i was excited and relieved when she wanted to talk about sophie's choice you mentioned warren Beatty earlier i forgot that the moment i also in your book with barry jenkins and warren Beatty uh, after the whole la la land envelope snafu it had to do with the envelope, and I was—I remember being surprised by it, but I don't remember the, the specifics. So, as you remember, there was that whole mix-up. The wrong envelope was read, but then the right envelope came out, and Jordan Horowitz, who was one of the producers of La La Land, held the envelope up, and there was a close-up for those of us watching the TV telecast that said, you know, best picture is Moonlight. So we all at home saw that close-up, but Barry Jenkins was sitting, you know, 10 rows back and couldn't read the envelope. Right. So. So even though he was pretty sure he had won because he trusted Jordan Horowitz, who said, Moonlight, you won Best Picture. When he got up and made the speech, he still didn't he still hadn't seen proof that his, his movie Moonlight had won. And wow. it wasn't where he was kind of winding through the hallways of the theater backstage that he encountered Warren Beatty, who still had the right envelope in his hand and was like holding it up high. I guess people were trying to get it. And he was like, nope. And he gave it. He said, you're the person I want to give this to. He said to Barry Jenkins and he gave it to Barry Jenkins. And Barry told me that he took it, took a picture of it and gave it back to Warren Beatty. Which I found fascinating. I want a picture, but I'm going to give it back to Warren Beatty. Um, When you look back at your early journalism days, are there things you can't believe you did or said? I have a few of those or stories that happened. I did a story for Movie Line on Trophy Girls for the Oscars because I was fascinating. Who are they? What do they do? And I got Raquel Conti, who was Bill Conti's daughter, to be interviewed. And she wore a gown and she did this little photo shoot of the wrong way to present an Oscar, like holding it by the head. And I look back and I'm like, the Academy must not have liked that at all. Oh, I thought it was really funny and irreverent, but I look back at that and feel like that feels like that feels like thin ice. <laughs> but you that's guys, what happened. You guys at Movie Line were were scrappier and more irreverent than we were at EW. When we were snarky a little bit, but we were a little bit more establishment because we yeah. also were part of a bigger conglomerate and all that, and assist of sibling up people magazine and all that. Um, but I just think back to the early days and just like how nervous I was, at, you know, whenever I at 22 years old to interview any celebrity. I mean, I remember even doing a phoner with Peter Riegert and I was it was my first ever phoner. I was 22. I just started like a month earlier and I was so nervous to do a phone interview. And now it's, it's just I'm I'm happy about how far I've come where now this is kind of like second nature and. It's just about getting a good interview and creating a good space to, to get a good interview. And I don't get really nervous that much anymore. I think both of us love to interview people. I love it. It's my happy place. I'm, I, it's, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Why do you love it? I'm nosy. And, <laughs> and also, 
this sounds so cheesy, but I'm going to say it. I am just in awe of actors. I think it's amazing what they can do. Me too. I, I think they're magicians. I, 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 I am in awe. The more I've met them, the more I'm around, the older I get, the more in awe of them I am. Yeah. And I'm someone who is very comfortable being myself. I love speaking publicly. I love speaking on camera. I love meeting people, going out and doing events, whatever. But the idea of performing or playing someone else, I've tried it and I'm horrible. And it's, I'm so self-conscious that I could never do it. So the way these people can access these emotions and make it seem so convincing, it's, I'm just in awe of it. So I'm just, and also I find them just kind of like charismatic people 90% of the time. And I love talking to charismatic people. So I don't think I could interview like scientists, yeah. but I love interviewing creative people. Do you ever have a man crush on somebody you interviewed? I'll go first. Yeah, sure. Vigo Mortensen. Oh, me too. After our interview, he like stopped me in my car and he gave me this hat, like this cap that he was wearing. He just gave it to me. And then for the next week or so, I got stuff in the mail from him, mm. like mixtapes that he made. <laughs> like, I was like, I don't know. Vigo Mortensen is what's happening. Like I, I still have Vigo Mortensen mixtapes. And, and then he sent me the mad magazine where GI Jane was parodied because he was like, then I arrived and I was like, Oh, that's perfect for my story. I don't know. But I was like, did I miss my moment? Did I, could I have been Mr. Vigo Mortensen? Dave? Yeah, I mean, he's very um, <laughs> progressive. I mean, he's like, and he's a Renaissance man. He's one of my crushes. Oh, I have so many Aaron Eckhart. I love, Interesting. Um, I heard he was right. thorny and like intimidating, but you, you. I'm talking about crushes. Oh yeah, not not interview subjects. Okay, crushes. Interesting. No, but I interviewed him. I liked him too. Uh, okay. Greg Kinnear was always a big crush of mine when Interesting. I was in the I always loved him. Um, Jason Bateman, I've always loved. Nice. I there's there's a Harrison Ford to this day. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I love it. Is there anyone you want to interview that you haven't gotten to interview? That's a great question. Do you know who I've never interviewed? This isn't a, this isn't an actor. It's a singer. Yeah. Sting. Oh, interesting. I've been a huge fan of the police. I've been a huge fan of his. I've met him twice, but I've never had like a proper interview conversation with him. And that would be, that would be a thrill. Yeah. Um, I know, I know we only have a half hour, um, but I have a couple of random movie related questions that I thought it'd be fun to do a lightning round and then we'll wrap it up. How does that sound? Okay. I do this thing at the end of my podcast called The Observation Deck. They're fun cards when I do it in person. And here's some of the movie-related Observation Deck questions for you. What movie have you seen more than any other? 16 Candles. Oh. I went – when, when it was a dollar movie theater, I went back like three nights in a row. Um, I can break the whole movie. And it's weird. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it was on an airplane that I was on like a year ago. And I was like, I need to watch it. And it's still great. Yeah. But there's a lot of like, you know. <laughs> I love, I love when the drunk girl wakes up in the car and he's like, did you enjoy it? <laughs> like it was basically rape. And she's like, I think I did. <laughs> it's shocking now. Shocking now. The long duck dong of it all. So many things. But I love those movies. I just got to interview Andrew McCarthy for an EPK thing. And it was like, oh, St. Elmo's. Like, I, you know. Pretty in pink. Come on. Come on. Okay. What movie did you see when you were way too young to see it? Porky's. <gasps> in the theater or at home? No, at home. HBO. And the other one that I saw way too early. Oh, speaking of crushes. Oh, my God. Top of the list. Richard Gere. Oh, yeah. Best I walk saw- in Hollywood. Best walk in Hollywood. 
I saw Breathless, his <gasps> version of Rachel. Yeah, it, I mean, he he turned me gay. Yeah. I was in your book and I was reading the chapter of Louis Gossett Jr., which made me cry for some reason. I don't know what it was about his story that did. And then there's a beautiful picture of Richard Gere and I'm like, that face. You're welcome. (laughs) It's so, oh, he's an underappreciated icon. Um, uh, What movie costume do you wish you owned so you could wear it around the house? Ooh, maybe... Gene Kelly's whole wardrobe from Singing in the Rain. I just think he was like at the height of his looks and athleticism. And I just love everything. It's very slimming. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take it. I would do John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Assuming things fit. Like fit is not a problem. You're going to look amazing in it. That's the rule. But not the white suit, the uh, dusty rose polyester slacks and the the, um, polyester shirt at the beginning that he zips and buttons up. Isn't it funny how movies that never that always felt contemporary are now like TCM movies? Like you're doing a Pulp Fiction thing coming up. I'm like, oh god, I'm so old. Thirty years ago, Pulp Fiction. It's our opening night of our TCM film festival in April. Yeah. Yeah. This is my last random movie related question. I know you're uh, you're in a relationship and t- taken, but if you meet the love of your life in a revival house line, what movie's playing? Broadcast news. Broadcast news. Because that would say that they're smart. That would say that they have empathy. That's that would say that they. Um, Maybe a Holly Hunter. Yes. Yeah, that's such. Important. That's such a classic. All right, Dave. This was super fun. Tell people uh, where they can find your book or any other events that you got coming up that you want to want to promote. Sure. The book is called 50 Oscar Nights. It's anywhere. You can get it online. You can go to an independent bookstore and get it. You, it's everywhere you get your books. I also on X and Instagram at. Dave Carger, K-A-R-G-E-R. And you can find me on Turner Classic Movies. I have two time slots. I'm on every Saturday afternoon and every Monday night. And it's the job of a lifetime. I love it. What What's the big Turner Classic movie? What do people love on there? What's the big hit that people are super into? Which one? Casablanca. Anytime we show that, people get very excited. They're all about it. It just yep. It's a tight, lean movie, too. It is not long. It's like, I saw that and I was like, oh, wow. Boom. That was... And you're out. You're in, you're out. It's perfect. There's no problems. Here's my final question. Uh, this is your first book. What's really moved you and surprised you about the experience? What does it mean to you to, to have a book? I'm very emotional about this whole experience, Dennis. And and I like I cry when people come up to me and say that they've read it. I cry when I read it. You mentioned Kevin O'Connell, the sound mixer who finally won an Oscar after losing 20 times. I cry every time I read his chapter. I've cried on stage talking about this book. I don't know what it is, but I've turned into like a blubbering mess looking because I don't have kids. So this is like my kid in a weird way, this book. And just the whole experience, it has my name on it like that. It's 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 something that I've become very emotional about, and that has really taken me by surprise. But I've held it together for this podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. I cry in every one, apparently, now. That's my new thing. Um, but it comes through in the book. There's lots of fun, dishy anecdotes and, ooh, I didn't know that or whatever. And then there's this feeling of, like, sort of, I don't know, love of movies, accomplishment, uh, triumph of the human spirit. I don't know, those big themes. There's an undercurrent of that that I find very moving. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you liked it. Oh, it's great. It's like, I, like I said, it's just like delicious. Like, oh, I, I think I'm going to have a little Jennifer Hudson right now. Okay. Yeah. Boom. EGOT winner, J-HUD. What? Yet she doesn't have a single hit song that we can name apart from Dreamgirls. Fascinating. Just a thought. Um, spotlight. Spotlight. Mm, okay. <laughs> I know. I remember that though. I could have named it. I could have named it. 
and I could sing it. Okay, so I I'm, love full of, her. I'm full of shit. She's a delight. Here's a fun story about her. I, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. I got to go to this Dream Girl. You might have been there. Dream Girls her. did this live. They were shooting yes. a scene at the Orpheum or somewhere, and a bunch of journalists got to go. Oh, I didn't go to that. Okay, no, I went after the movie was done. Okay, yeah, so going. they were shoot. They were actually shooting, and we all got to watch. Um, I think it's Step into the Bad Side. It was this thing, and I mm. think they were all in red. And afterwards, there was a mix and mingle thing, and I got to meet Jay Hud. And I said, you know, I loved so much when you sang Weekend in New England on Idol. I said, I just thought it was amazing. I love Barry Manilow. That's one of my favorite songs. And she goes, I'll send it to you. Give me your email. I'll send you an MP3. And she fucking did it. That's Jay Hud. Yeah. Yeah. Gee, I like her interview too. People should check out that one. It's very, very honest and willing to admit that she didn't know who Effie White was. And when she, you know, so this was a whole learning experience for her. Yeah. The whole book is just delicious. So congrats, Dave. And uh, hopefully our, our paths will cross soon. I would love that. You too. All Thanks right. so much. Bye. Thanks again to Dave Carger. Pick up his book, 50 Oscar Nights. You will love it. All right, so this happened. Actually, it's related to Dave's book, and it happened way back in 2006, 2007, sometime in there. So there's a chapter in Dave's book about Melissa Etheridge where she talks about winning best song for a song from the Al Gore documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. I think it's called I Need to Wake Up. Wake Up, We're Flooding, something like that. Anyway, I saw Melissa in concert earlier in that year, like maybe the summer of... 2006 sometime and she introduced the song and she talked about the documentary and then she was like if there are any Oscar voters in the crowd like she was campaigning at that concert and I was like oh she's got her eye on the prize and when I read Dave's book uh, this was validated she really wanted it and she kind of had a dream earlier or like a like a I don't know a vision of winning an Oscar and like so the point is she manifested it and I've said it before and I'll say it again lesbians get shit done also I think she beat all the songs from Dreamgirls all the new songs from Dreamgirls so yeah that's some that's some powerful manifesting right there I don't know if she got any Oprah roses for it um you just don't know you you can't count on Oprah roses they either show up or they don't oh and while we're talking about movies you know our last two episodes was the year-end movie wrap-up that I did with Drew Drogi and Glenn Gaylord and people have been giving me some of their opinions so if you have an opinion you want to share about any of the movies we talked about I have a voicemail that I always forget to mention but it's 1-888-647-9653 one 647 9653 If you want to weigh in on any of the movies, let us know your opinion. Uh, when we were doing the movie wrap-up, I had mentioned that all of us strangers, that I enjoyed it as it was unfolding. I was moved by it. And then I had a weird hangover after it was over, like, the next day. I was a little like, mm, I don't know about that movie. Anyway, I watched it again. I gave it another chance. Wept like a baby. Still had a weird hangover, and I'm a little bit... I I, I was able to put my finger a little more on it, I think. And this is a very unpopular opinion, by the way, because I go on Facebook, and all the gays that are my age are like, I loved it! Like, they're all in. I felt like um, the other three actors, except for Andrew Scott, so the other three, the parents, and um, Paul Mescal, uh, Claire Foy, and Jamie Bell... And the filmmaker, I felt they all decided to team up and fuck with Andrew Scott. Like, let's fuck with this guy. <laughs> we're gonna be ghosty and not ghosty, and we're gonna maybe like we're maybe gonna give him love, but no, we're not going to. And like, I just felt—I <laughs> don't know. I felt like 
I felt like poor Andrew Scott was like, I felt every moment that he was there. I, and I, those feelings, I related to so many of them as a gay man of a certain age. And just like, oh. And also, if you want to make me cry, have a movie where a father tells a son he's proud of him. I'll lose it. I'll lose it. Um, that's my big thing. That's that just says something about me, my history. Um, I also, I don't know. I felt like the long pauses were a little, I don't know. I just did not, I did not drink that particular uh, cocktail of a movie. When I first moved to L.A., I used to take acting classes. Um, and I remember, like, the really good students um, it reminded the movie reminded me of when the really the best students in acting class would do a scene and there would be like ten lines in the scene and then they, they, they would just keep going and they would just say stuff and then just look at each other for a long time but they were in it they were in it you be it you you believe it but some of it felt like an acting exercise just like hold this forever hold this pause forever and then say um, I'm sorry I didn't come in your room when you're crying and you will have Dennis in your back pocket long story short. Uh, I'm not on the. I'm not on the all about strangers train. All about strangers. What's it called? All of us strangers. <laughs> all right. Um, another thing that happened more recently is we did the mismatch game. It was our Valentine's edition. Uh, Heartbreak feels good in a place like this edition, and it was packed to the gills, um, sold out, and we raised the most money that we ever raised in one show, which was forty seven hundred and thirty five dollars. So. That felt really good. It was a really good time. We had a great cast um, and lots of laughs. And the next mismatch game is going to be in Palm Springs on Friday, March 15th. So if you're out there, come see us at Oscars. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to give a shout-out to Oscar Rosario for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye!